Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? I'm good, David. I really am good, but I, I'm I'm I've been thinking about the chicken today. I've been thinking ah. about that archetypal chicken who crossed the road. You know, everyone goes, yes. "Why did the chicken cross the road?" You know, and I was thinking, I've never heard anyone say congratulations to that chicken for crossing the road. You know, the chicken yeah. made it. He did. And or she. I, well, you know, and I wonder, you know, this is another example of how deep structures of attitude and thought are built into these humble little often cliched phrases and situations, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then I got excited because I, I have found to my satisfaction at least that I think it can conclusively be said that Robert Louis Stevenson was using cocaine and a very cool (laughs) form of cocaine when he was writing The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which we referred to earlier in our series about the doppelganger, the vartiger, and the mysterious double idea. So, uh, and then... Um, I did watch, uh, there's been a real resurgence of interest in the, the music and multimedia group, The Residents, who are mm-hmm. from San Francisco. And I've just been a huge uh, fan uh, of theirs for years. Well, really since their start. And I watched uh, one of their many uh, phenomenal music videos for a song called Infant Tango. And uh, I realized it's a beautiful example of of uh, Weiyang uh, shadow puppetry from Java, which um, is a great theatrical art form. One of my one of my favorites, and it's a beautiful example uh, for anyone who wants to check out what we're doing in a broader sense of. Within, I mean, there is a definite reference to shadow puppetry of of the Indonesian uh, tradition. But it's a beautiful bringing together of of the allegory of the cave, Plato's allegory of the cave from the Republic, very, very famous uh, moment of of philosophical drama in in world literature. And then Rupert Sheldrake's analogy of the television set, which we've also talked about. And for people interested in what we're exploring in part two of the series, Behind the Paywall, I think that's an interesting way to put it, of, of trying to bring together Plato's Allegory of the Cave and Rupert Sheldrake's Analogy of the Television Set. And I won't try to explain any more about that now, but uh, I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Do you do you think that's an interesting approximation of, of what we're trying to do? I think so. I think so. I definitely think that that seems like the two parts of the the ghost radio in a way. So the ghost radio has to do with the signal that we're trying to tune into a la Sheldrake. And then, you know, what we end up getting, as we've talked about with things like the tarot and archetypes and things like that, are these uh, emissions, transmissions from that side, which could be read as shadows on mm-hmm. the, the cave wall. So I see it as, as both parts of that. I think that's a good analogy for what we're doing here. 
Yeah, good. And I think there's certainly shadows cast within the the matrix of language, you know, in terms of, of the shadows of ideas, which is a, a, a Giordano Bruno, you know, phrase. Um, so I think that is a good way to think of it for people who, who know those references. But it, it's worth just checking out again, the allegory of the cave mm -hmm. uh, and what, what Plato was trying to say about that. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful parable story. Uh, it's, it's influenced hundreds, if not thousands, of, of both artists and philosophers ever since then. Rupert Sheldrake's analogy of the TV set is perhaps, well, certainly less familiar to people. It can be found in his first book, but he, he often has used it uh, it's an underpinning idea across his whole life project. And it, it's a beautiful, beautiful example of uh, concept and language coming together to in, in on a very practical level, because, you know, we're all pretty familiar with TV sets. Uh, so I think it's a beautiful example of what a great analogy is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I don't really think that there has been a better one yet for trying to commune or understand the outside, right? The things that are outside human experience, whether that's paranormal or things that we interpret as just plain old normal. I think that uh, the whole mechanistic Descartes, you know, we all make all of our thoughts from chemicals in our brains, uh, which the more and more I think about it and just saying it like that, the less and less it actually makes sense. You know, the, the brain is this electrocharged piece of meat through which chemicals uh, move is true, but completely insufficient, right? Um, but the idea that there would be a thing, a substance, um, something in the air that kind of floats through it, just makes more sense to me. You know, it's a radio or it's a TV set uh, or it's a Wi-Fi connection. We can update it for the 21st century, right? Now it's a cloud that's, yes. that's you know, <laughs> and it makes you wonder if the cloud that we've created is now interacting with the natural cloud and what that might mean, what, what strange etheric reactions might be going on in that realm. But, um, but yeah, I had a pretty good week just uh just maybe a gus update here at the top of the show uh he is now smiling and uh, also laughing hysterically at uh tongue wagging and a toy that my mother bought which is an elephant that uh covers its eyes with its ears and plays peekaboo uh he's just kind of fascinated whoa how does it do thing. that well, it's this animatronic thing, and it sings a peekaboo song while it does it. So it oh, kind can of you, like. Can you tell us the. Sing it for us, David. Oh, it goes like this it goes, Pika, Pika, Peekaboo. You can't see me, and I can't see you. It's like that. Um, wow, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, my, wonder, my wonderful singing voice, my wonderful singing voice. But also my mother had, uh, my mother is currently uh, doing an extended babysit of my three-year-old niece while my sister is away at Naval Intelligence School. Um, and so she'll come over with the kid, uh, the three-year-old, and turn on um, Coco Melon because she wants time with the baby. And she has a really strict rules for when television is allowed in the house. So basically, the kid saves up her television time for when she comes to my house, 
which makes me the cool uncle with the TV. Um, but she turned on this show for babies. It's called Coco Melon. And um, she's watching it, you know, got her fingers in her mouth, completely zoned out. And my mom is holding my son, and I see that his head has turned, and he's staring slack-jawed at the screen. And I thought, no! We can't, <laughs> he can't be indoctrinated into the TV this quickly. But it is fascinating. You know, he was fussing a little bit. He wasn't hungry. He was tired and doing the baby thing of kicking the feet and complaining. And then as soon as this very creepy children's show comes on with these computer animated babies uh, singing songs about dinosaurs and the planets, he just became transfixed. He's three months old. There's no way he knows what's going on, but it works. Does he have an Amazon Prime account yet? Yeah, but he can only access it on his cell phone. So okay, that, there you that's, go. That's, that's good to have some good. discipline that's there. That's good, at least. Yes. But, <laughs> but yeah, no, we've had a lot of rain here lately, and the mosquitoes are chewing everybody up. So I bought this great thing on Amazon that lures them in with UV light and then sucks them into an air vacuum, and they get stuck to sticky paper. So I'm ready to wage my war <laughs> on them. But... uh all kinds of dad stuff. Did I did I go over on this show that I lost my temper with somebody in the parking lot of a Walgreens? Did I talk about that yet? No, no, but you did a whole routine about backpack discipline and planning to go out mm-hmm. to such venues. Uh, no, mm-hmm. you, you didn't mention about any uh, disreputable civic behavior. Oh, dear. Well, I lost it. I... I lose it less and less these days but i had uh, my son in the back seat of the car and we were backing out of a parking space and some guy just flies by and he like lays on his horn so i you know pump the brakes really fast and i'm telling myself like calm down calm down it's not important don't worry about it uh but i don't know have you ever seen the movie kill bill when she goes into kill mode and it's yeah. this red flashing yeah. light and a siren. So that's pretty much all I saw. So I pulled up on the guy, which in Oklahoma, you never really know what you're going to get when you do that. You never really know kind of what's in the car. But, you know, again, not thinking completely clearly. And uh, the guy rolls down his window and he says something to the effect of, you know, you effing people, you need to learn how to how to drive. And I just lost it just got in his face I what said, was the word before people what was the adjective the descriptor uh you... oh f effing i'm just trying to keep it oh PG. i see oh, oh i see PG. okay no yeah. I, uh, I just i thought yeah. I, I thought that was i i heard in oklahoma sort of right you know there's no place in america anymore where you can be sure what you're gonna get when you mm-hmm. you know have it have a run-in with anyone um mm-hmm. You know, there's just too many guns. There's too many uh, sort of drugs, too much medication, too much tension, too many weird people. Um, Yeah. Well, and the thing is, too, is that I have a I have a gun as well. I'm not going to get into a shootout at the Walgreens parking lot. But, you know, it's just Oklahoma, man. It's I think I feel like everybody probably has one. But anyway, long story short, I I yelled at him, you know, there's a kid in the car or whatever. um, And that shut him up and then i i might have said a few other things about i don't know kicking his ass or you know that he was this that and the other uh but he was there kind of dumbstruck and i think that's one of the first altercations i've gotten into where i 
think the guy saw a little bit of a reason. Because I may have been imagining this, but I think I saw a little bit of remorse flash across his face, as though he had been speeding through this parking lot listening to, you know, heavy metal or something, whatever he was listening to. And, you know, in his car, completely shielded from the outside world, forgetting that other people exist. When I said that there was a kid in the car, a light switch clicked on. And I think just for a moment, he thought, hmm, I might be an asshole. So it yeah. all ended well. But uh, but yeah, man, haven't been that way in in years, but I just went into attack mode, you know? Well, look, it happens, you know, and I think I'm, I'm pleased that there wasn't any sort of more, uh, you know, anything of consequence that resulted from it. Um, but, you know, that idea that you just don't know what, what's happening with people. I mean, it, it's a, it actually rained uh, quite a, well for here, uh, grateful for any rain. Uh, we had a, a couple of, of good downpours, but there was a thunderstorm yesterday and uh I went out to look at it and I was, I had a mind to sort of see if I could get some sort of tape recording of the thunder because it sounded really, really quite cool. The kind of thunder I really, really like. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of static electricity, you know, zipping around, but certainly, you know, up in the higher atmosphere that, you know, that's why we're getting thunder. You know, it's, mm-hmm. there's a lightning and thunder, you know, relationship. And, and sure. basically you think most people are on top of that. Well, I chanced to look around um, the uh, the corner on my balcony, and I have a view of the the complex's pool, and I really enjoy swimming every morning early. And I had gotten in there, uh, you know, hours before, but this is now sort of mid afternoon, and there really is lightning and thunder. And there's, you know, sure enough, there are people in the pool. There are adults with and children, <laughs> you know, and it's, I mean. I oh, I have, you know, I understand the idea of being, you know, the attraction of being in a pool already wet when it's raining. But there's another, it, you don't have to be out there in a thunder and lightning storm. And when the thunder is right over your head, people, you know, <laughs> that means the lightning is nearby. And these people were so stupid. I mean, yeah. they were militantly stupid. It's Darwin and Awards material. Totally. Totally. And so, you know, when, when you have an incident in a parking lot, you know, it, 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 the chances are actually that it is someone, if they're not an asshole, they're, they're stupid, you know, yeah. and that's a good prerequisite for being difficult, you know, mm-hmm. it's just not getting life, you know, lightning. That's, oh, what, what does lightning yeah. have to do with water, you know? Oh, and and, I, and I'll I'll get into the the episode here soon, but that just made me flash on something. I've had um, a revelation over the past several weeks, and it's been something that I've been thinking. I've been thinking a lot about Byung Chul Han, uh, the German philosopher's idea of the idiot, and um, the uh, the idea that in our kind of modern time, where people basically do not uh they're not necessarily surveilled by their government so much as they kind of willingly give up their information in exchange for likes on social media uh he posits that sort of the best position to take is one of the idiot right there's all this kind of uncertainty uh both with the information that we receive 
and our reasoning for relaying information to other people. So it's kind of, it's kind of this idea of, you know, stopping and smelling the flowers and adopting a persona of an idiot uh, in, in day-to-day life, right? So I've been thinking about that, and I was thinking about uh, people who actually are idiots, who are legitimate idiots. There's, you know, swimming in the pool during a thunderstorm type type idiots. And <laughs> the I was, legitimate idiots. <laughs> yeah, the legitimate idiots, you know, not the poser idiots like like I'm, I'm thinking about. But, um, you know, I, I was thinking about uh, popular culture, and, you know, there are some things that I will see, like... You're in a store, say it's uh, Walmart or Home Depot, you're in the home decor section, you know, I don't know if Home Depot has that actually, but imagine it does. And you see a plaque that says something to the effect of, um, you know, live, laugh, love. Or I remember I saw one, it was in an Airbnb that I stayed in, that just said, uh, flowers are the friends of life. What does that mean? I have no idea. Um, not, not friends are the flowers of life, but flowers are the friends of life. Anyway, so you look at that kind of stuff and you think, oh my God, who on earth would have that in their home? And then you suddenly realize, you know, who watches the big bang theory? Who has flowers of the friends of life in their house? The answer is most people actually have that. And when I had that revelation, (laughs) I stopped being upset about things that I saw on the news and on social media. It was like the clouds parted and I was like, oh, right. You know what I mean? And this And this is not to, you know, toot my own horn or sound like some kind of jerk or something like that. But when you realize that level of idiocy or stupidity is kind of what we're dealing with, I don't know, that, even that sounds too harsh to me. You know, that kind of normie-ish thing. It just really takes the pressure off, you know? People aren't thinking about stuff, man. They're just trying to grill. That's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I think this is, you know, the big, big topic of of the modern age, of, of how we got to that point. I mean, is that in fact fair, is it fair? It's certainly fair in some way. We know that's true. The percentage terms is, is, is you know, I think that's in doubt. Uh, but mm-hmm. there's an awful lot of diagnostic evidence to suggest, yes, this is the case. Uh, but I don't really think that anyone knows the cause. I think we have uh, a kind of um, quick think, idiot think, look at what the causes might be, and the usual suspects have things to do with mass entertainment, the media, the uh, emergence of the digital era, and therefore computerization in the home, social media, dependence on the internet, scrambled brains, on and on and on. Um, And, you know, rampant consumerism and any number of things. But the any the problem with those explanations that i've always found is that they uh they seem to really focus on the american nature of of idiocy and mm-hmm. we we have a hard time looking at idiocy 
uh, more generally in a, in a global sense. I mean, is the kind of idiocy we're talking about a defining American characteristic? And I'm often tempted to say yes. You know, I think so. I, I, yeah. I was going to say the same thing. Yeah, I really think it is. And I don't know where it comes from. I would love to find that out. But I have to say, yeah, it's sort of how the rest of the world feels about us. And by the way, I'm of the persuasion that I really love America. I, I do love this country and all the stupid, stupid people in it. But, you know, we are just kind of, you know, we like big trucks and big boobs and grilling and you know country songs and beer and you know it's it you know it's just a bunch of kind of drooling mouth breather breathers mouth breathers uh sort of shouting at the top of their lungs while listening to zz top and frankly i think that's kind of beautiful in its own way yeah, I do too. And I, I have to say, when I really reflect on things, I, I mean, I have known some, uh, certainly the Brits have their own special breed uh, of this kind of, of person. And, and really, it, it, it's a it's a culture with a, with a lowercase c. And mm-hmm. the Australians do that, I know. And mm-hmm. for some reason, I occasionally um, flash back to a moment in Singapore where uh, they had, and it's it's really blown up. Singapore is, is just, you know, is where a lot of people would want to live if they were really rich. I think it's a great yeah. city for young people who are, uh, there's a whole other world of students living on the cheap there, but you never hear about them. But they had done up this uh, island with uh, an aerial tramway, which gave you kind of a beautiful view of the harbor. And, Singapore Harbor is one of the busiest in the world. I mean, there's always something to see and the skyline's intense. And then you've got sort of this island and then you've got the Indian Ocean out there. So there's a lot of stuff to look at. So I got in this this tram once and I was bundled in with a very middle class Indian family. I mean, an East Indian family. And we were crammed in and... I didn't really feel good about that. I, I, I thought that was not good just going over this, this section of water. Well, I really, really stopped thinking it was good when the tram broke down. And oh in Singaporean humidity, I was trapped with this family who are exactly the Indian equivalent of what we've been talking about with, with the Americans. <laughs> and. Yeah. We, I was there with them for 45 minutes. Oh, dear. And it, it challenged my inner soul. I mean, f- mm-hmm. forget challenges on other levels. I mean, I was doing all I could not to jump out of that tram. Had it right. not been a 60, I think it was a, maybe a 60 or even a 100-foot jump, it would have been like a land diver thing, except I wouldn't have had a vine. But I yeah. was driven completely nuts. So every once in a while when we do think about uh, the LCD people, I once used that term in a, in, a, um, at a, in a presentation, and this one woman just rose up out of her chair and started screaming at me that I was bigoted. <laughs> And mm-hmm. this guy next to her, fortunately, said he means lowest common denominator. Mm-hmm. 
she thought yeah. I was, you know, some sort of thing connected with the LGBTQ. I don't know what she oh, thought. Oh, so she she was actually an LCD, an LCD person. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. That's hilarious. I wasn't making the connection. I was like, what does this mean? I'm familiar with LCD televisions. Um, but yeah, no, I'd never, never heard that before. But no, that's that's just hilarious, man. But again, you know, it's one of those things where people are idiots in different ways. I mean, if you if you take my, my buddy Greer, who runs an auto body shop up in Tulsa, we, we used to joke that he was kind of the, the idiot of the group you know, that would be the running gag, but he's the kind of person who can open up the hood of a car and tell you what's wrong with it by looking at it. Um, you know, maybe one or two tests here or there to, to listen to it or whatever. And whenever I would have car troubles, uh, I would ask him to come over and fix it. It was often something very, very simple. And he would look at me like I was the idiot. And in that situation, yeah, yeah, I was, I was the dummy in that because he would just look at me and be like how do you not know this and it's the same feeling that i feel when someone tells me that their favorite television show is you know how i met your mother or something i'm like but (laughs) but how so anyway on that note chris for this first part of no country what would you like to talk about today Okay, well, I do have a couple of uh, housekeeping announcements, and they are exciting. Uh, I I just want to float the idea um, that coming up in the weeks ahead, we we are going to uh, begin uh, having some guests. And we have a very special first guest that we're looking at um, for the end of August. I'm not going to say anything more about that. I will say that I think you'll find her uh, entertaining, to say the least. Um, And we're going to uh, make some of that available in part one, but certainly behind the paywall. Uh, We also have something very exciting. I've I've rediscovered... um, uh, an extensive uh, interview, very free-form interview conducted with uh, the late Dennis Hopper. Um, I was at his house in Venice um, shortly before he was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And so he was he was in absolutely great spirits. He just finished shooting an indie film in Canada. Uh, it was really, really terrific. So I'm, I've, I've used a couple of samples in uh, the CD for... Uh, the Reverend America soundtrack, soundtrack to my novel, Reverend America. I'm going to harvest uh, a couple more pieces and do an original music composition, uh, which will be debuted on, on No Country Behind the Paywall. But I'm also going to do some editing of, of the interview. And because Hopper has such a beautiful voice, he had such mm-hmm. an interesting career. I mean, in his, you know, he was very good friends with James Dean. In his, at the start, Hopper had done several, well, I think at least three films where he did a death scene with John Wayne, which I think is a very, oh, wow. very strange uh, deal. I just watched True Grit the other night, and he's there, and he's dying in, oh, in wow. John Wayne's arms. So a very, very interesting artist. People. Uh, maybe certainly familiar with his tremendous uh, 
portrayal of, of Frank in Blue Velvet. Mm-hmm. And David and I are both huge Lynch fans. So I think there will be something very, very special for our paywall subscribers uh, to look forward to. And and this is just a hint of, of more things that are, are coming up. Um, mm-hmm. And Can I talk about a few of those things real fast, actually? Yeah, I think, yeah. I think this, this might be a good space for it. Um, so behind the paywall, if you become a patron uh, of the No Country podcast, uh, we have a lot of cool stuff lined up on deck. Chris has sent me a master document, 22 or 23 pages long of blog uh, excerpts and sort of full entries. Uh, so we are going to be having back and forth uh probably via email discussions about some of those and then posting those transcripts um we are going to be having a chris happy hour once a month where we all hop onto a zoom call and just shoot the shit uh which should be a lot of fun um we are also getting rolling on our book club which will be very very exciting there are courses in the works um, the second half of this year is going to be uh, a torrent of new material for uh, for learning and for having fun and for developing community. So we just have a lot of stuff on there. I was telling Chris over the phone before we started that I have been I've been blogging every day over at BrokenRiverBooks.com, and I'm actually going to I believe shift my focus over to the No Country blog on the Patreon. Because um, I want to kind of start putting my eggs into this particular basket because it's the most uh, colorful and fun basket that I have. So it's just it's going to be, you know, for uh, for eight bucks a month, uh, everything except for the book club, which will be a new tier. uh, You're going to get a lot of cool stuff on a semi regular, not quite daily, but almost daily basis. So it'll be worth it absolutely is and we're going to be doing a whole bunch of fun things and we're going to start off with something fun everybody loves a contest in a competition uh one of the things that david and i started talking about uh in part two we're looking into archetypes and the concept of characters and we've been having uh some really good discussion about the tarot deck um, which is not to be confused with the tuber tarot without a T, which I sometimes talk about in terms of New Guinea. We're talking about the major arcana of the tarot cards, the, um, the tower, the empress, the wheel of fortune, the lovers, the hanged man, on and on. Uh, what we're going to do is have a contest for people who are subscribers, so you do have to be a subscriber to enter, to come up with a new original tarot figure, a new addition to the major arcana, something that speaks to the modern age of mythology and archetypes. And the only one that we've decided to take off the table right from the start, uh, there may be others, but this is the one that came to mind, was the Rampage Shooter. Okay, we're we're not going there, but there are a lot of other interesting uh, figures and conceptual ideas for characters and this symbolic notion of what the tarot is. And David's has shared with us some interesting ideas of how to think about the tarot behind the paywall. And certainly for anybody interested in the tarot, I I think it would be worth 
just checking out those discussions uh, purely on their own. But so the idea is to come up with your own idea for a character and some character description, some sense of, of the symbolic meaning that would sit with the kinds of descriptions that you find in uh, conventional tarot decks. If you could visualize it, all the better. We're all about visualizing, embodying ideas. Embodying is a key word concept that we're using in part two. And the winner will have a choice between two really cool books. These are not, these are expensive books. These are interesting, really curious books that, uh, that I'm very excited about. One is called Writing by Drawing When Language Seeks Its Other. I think that's a great title. It's an anthology of essays by some heavy hitters from a range of fields. Uh, Jean Dubuffet, the artist who also really gave us the idea of uh, art brut, uh, the idea of, of outsider art. He was a pioneering figure in praising those um, people. Brian Geisen, who was a collaborator of William Burroughs, and Susan Hiller. So that's a really cool book. Your other choice is Seeing with Fresh Eyes, Meaning, Space, Data, and Truth by Edward Tuft, or Tuft. Uh, and if, if you want to check those books out, you can see that they're really cool. And I think they're really cool prizes. So we hope that people who have some ideas on this, I've often been excited about creating my own tarot deck. Um, don't get hung up on the visualization if you, if you don't have those skills. If you do, great, but we're, we're interested in this idea of seeing if we can reflect any changes in, in contemporary or modern age archetypes. Uh, see if we can add to and modify the, the tarot deck concept, that major arcana of 23 uh, symbolic figures. So that's really cool. And we've got a, a special competition coming up for people who are listening just to part one. Uh, that's sort of more in the Charles uh, Fort line, but we'll announce that a little bit later. But in the meantime, think about subscribing to part two. Uh, there's going to be a lot of added value, a lot of fun interaction. Community building is the entire focus. Um, mm -hmm. So we hope you can join us in that and, and it will be worth it. So there we go. Excellent. Yeah, sounds good. Future's looking bright. Okay, so now we're on to, uh, we really got to some interesting places with the, the childhood uh, versus adulthood issue, uh, the larger uh, cultural psychosis of nostalgia and its relationship to consumerism. We looked at both nostalgia and consumerism in within the paradigm of addiction, which is a very disturbing uh, framework, but I think pretty fair as we, we mm -hmm. ended up uh, thinking. And then through that, we, we, we came to the conclusion, uh, echoing an earlier topic that we, we looked closely at, it's one of the, the most important aspects of, of any anthropological study of, of any uh, culture, lowercase c, uh, initiation rites. And David gave us some really interesting background on, on some, a whole range of different uh, initiation rites. Uh, 
Um, and, and I thought those were really, really cool. And out of that, we, we realized, again, that, that one of the problems with the American societal situation is a collapse and a decay and a degeneration and a, a real corruption of, of initiation rites and, and the effect that this has on the larger uh, culture. And I, I made the assertion that if, if one were of a mind to perversely try to destroy a culture or to um, hamstring it in some way, that one of the points of attack would be on initiation rites. And that led us to, uh, you know, looking at the question of, of, because we did want to, you know, we always want to take this in a positive direction, of, of what are the possible repair mechanisms mm -hmm. that, that we can, in the West and in America, what can we do and what, what sort of scale do we have to work on to repair this cultural damage. And I, I thought I would throw this uh, episode um, open to David for a very, very specific sort of look at, at scale. And it seems to me there's no scale more important to us than our own roof lines and mm -hmm. our own sense of family. Um, if we if we live alone, we're we're conscious of a relationship to to the idea of family that may be mm -hmm. pleasant sometimes and a relief, and may be very discouraging and lonely at other times. But uh, David and Rios have now embarked on a real sense of, of family in the sense of welcoming a new child. So this is the chance to get well to kind of get your culture with a capital C going well and to put in some well to not repair the problem yet but but to anticipate the problem and to to be looking at some kind of ongoing uh psychic defense self-restoration you know what what kinds of thoughts are you guys having about the you know that now because i'm sure that you're having them Yes, yes. This is a great way of framing it because, as a matter of fact, it is something that I think about quite often. Um, just before I get into that, I was thinking about initiation rights as far as countrywide goes, this big macro level thing. And I thought to myself, well, there has to be some kind of shared value because initiation rights tend to work in smaller communities in which there is a shared set of values that the initiation right, whether literally or metaphorically, uh, can address. So taking it down to the family level, I think, is very, very important, not just in the fact that families are the building blocks that make up this big macro picture, but that when you tend to take care of your family's uh, mental and spiritual health, I do think that that has a kind of psychic bleed effect onto your surrounding areas and if you have enough of those you have enough of these kind of overlapping venn diagram bubbles that create a kind of healing field if you will so to get to your question um i guess i could start with the idea of shared goals and you would think that this would be kind of an easy uh in our capitalist society an easy question to answer but it's really not. And it's something that I don't think a lot of families have had 
actual discussions about. And what I mean by that is I can't think of a time when I sat down with my with my mother and father, who were good parents on balance, and really had a discussion not just about what I wanted to be when I grew up career-wise, but how I wanted to be and what a life actually looks like. It's a pretty heavy conversation to have because you're inevitably bringing up the concept of death, which I'll get to here in a second. But I think uh, what I would like to do with Gus is focus less on his career and on the idea of making money and on the idea of, you know, kind of outside of perpetuating the species, right? You know, finding a, a mate and having kids of his own and still being in this same rat race that we're all in. I think it would be interesting to frame that question rather as how do you want to to live your life? Not do you want to be a firefighter, but, uh, you know, what what is your relationship to the land around you and the environment around you going to be? So that's my starting point. And I'll stop here for a second to see if you have thoughts on that. Oh, I certainly do. I think there's cool. an enormous amount of, of stuff to discuss in around that. Um, first of all, I, I think it was really interesting of, of using, you use the expression shared values. Uh, mm -hmm. Then later you you substituted goals for values and i think those are two very different things i i think mm -hmm. values is is the is far more uh telling word there and it's a very very conflicted word in in english language particularly in american society and one of our larger themes is uh psychic defense and personal enlightenment through more attention to language values you know really it's a category problem because one, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes when people use that, that word, they really mean either very abstract things or really powerful beliefs, faith, uh, ideals, uh, matters of, of character, uh, matters of morals and ethics. On the other hand, value is the crassest word there could possibly be. What's it worth? What's it yeah. worth, pal? What's, right, it, what's right. it to you? What's it to mm -hmm. you? You know, mm -hmm. uh, so we've got a major, major schism. And this is another idea that David and I are pursuing. Uh, we take a lead from uh, the wonderful Gregory Bateson, who was really interested in schismatics and how that affects people's mental health. But, you know, he talked about schizophrenia and the double bind. Bateson is, is who gave us the, the phrase, the double bind, with quite a bit of explanation behind it. But it's related to cognitive dissonance. It, it, it's, a, it's just when your mind just tears apart because you're confronted with two completely conflicted things. And that's worth looking at across any subject field that we can find. We're, we're on the lookout for these huge schismatic fault lines because we think that's a clue to further defining the problems of, of modernity. And I think the, the notion of values, that word value, value village, there's a sale on it, value village. Value well, in. You know, <laughs> but, you know, uh, we, we, you and I share values, you know, of, of a deep sort of campfire kind. I mean, so we're really using one word 
in just such a spectrum of ways. No wonder there, you know, there are problems and, and confusions. The other thing I thought, which is really interesting, um, you know, everything does start with the family. And we all know that in you know, whatever sort of family background we had, we're always referencing it against some kind of ideal expectation, some sort of archetypal notion of what the family is. So people who have been in the worst straits in terms of being abandoned, raised by foster parents, whatever, then it's all, you know, in a negative sort of light, but they're still referencing the idea of, of the core orientation for growing up, for personal evolution within society is the family. And this idea is, you know, is so understood by other cultures around the world, indigenous cultures, who often take very, very different, you know, drastically different approaches to family. They, they don't have a nuclear family. They have a much more communal sense of, of raising children. But I thought about that, you know, there's an uncertainty factor about families and about their role, the role they should play. I mean, I remember when homeschooling was illegal, you know, mm. and anybody mm -hmm. who was involved in it was considered a fringe person. They, there was often an assumption of some weird religious belief or deep dysfunction of a very idiosyncratic kind, you know, too idiosyncratic to really put a label on. But it, it was really frowned on. And now I think most sensible parents are really thinking about homeschooling. That's what we're thinking of. <laughs> and, and certainly there is a return to appreciating at least an engagement with, with the educational system of what parents can determine about their child's education. How mm. much should they be involved? There's a whole level of, of connection there. So again, for people who are following us in part two, the, the idea of an uncertainty, and, and we're, we're experimenting with the notion of quantum uncertainty applied to the Newtonian level of stuff we can pick up, and also the cultural social level, seeing how quantumness works across uh, very different scales of, of operation. But we contrast that with uh, unst unstable, instability. And, and we, we, we say there's a difference between those <clears throat> two things. And I think that's a really, um, that's, a, that, that's a good tie-in to uh, uh, what, what, what we're doing in part two. But David, what I thought was interesting about, and, and you said it so uh, with beautiful simplicity, and I think a lot of people uh, understand exactly what you mean, even if they have very different circumstances. But this idea that when you, you talked with your parents and you engaged with them, you know, more deeply than I think than just a, a chat around the, the, the dining room table or the dinner table or whatever, of there wasn't a discussion of how to live, how to be mm -hmm. in the world. And I, I just couldn't agree with that more. And I don't think... Mm -hmm. You know, although I'm sad about that, the lack of that, 
I certainly don't think that reflects on my parents for having, you know, failed in some way. I, I don't think they they felt expected, you know, in their uh, program yeah. of, of what parents do to do that. And I, I'm curious yeah. about, you know, is that a generational thing? Um, because I know a lot of young parents would exactly agree with you that, that the how to live is exactly what they're concerned about. I believe it to be economic. I don't think that my parents' generation or the generation before them had to worry too much about quote unquote how to live uh, due to the abundance with which all material possessions uh, were kind of available to them. So my parents were teenagers in the 1980s when they had me very, very young. And um, at that time, you know, it was all big shoulder pads and cocaine and Wall Street and money was everywhere, sort of for the, you know, pretty much since the end of World War II, up through about that time, there was a lot of abundance and it became about consumerism and getting new cars and new houses and that that sort of thing. And I think that um, that created <laughs> a nationwide uh, temporal, you know, fugue state where you did have counterculture that would kind of rise up and be able to sort of see through all this. And we've mentioned many of the thinkers on this show uh, who've done that. But I think that the vast majority of people, and I'm not sure if this holds true to the same uh, degree today, the amount of people who were just kind of fine with things. So what do I mean by that? I mean that you could potentially in the 1970s work at uh, a fast food restaurant and maybe not support a huge family, but you could put a down payment on a house, um, especially if you had any job that's kind of above that tier. Let's say you were a mechanic or you sold refrigerators at Sears or something of that nature. You not only had money to raise your family, you might have had money for a few vacations or maybe even a jet ski right? So with all of that abundance around, the question, I think, uh, whether or not, you know, this this was new in the history of people, uh, the question really did become about what you wanted to do because a career became another possession, another thing that you could uh, sort of own and, you know, express your quote-unquote individuality through. But the hows, I think, got a little bit lost. Or maybe I'll just speak for my parents and their parents. It definitely got lost for them. So the other element to that was that they were uh, very devout Southern Baptists. So on the one hand, with the quote-unquote how-to-live question, you have a kind of rampant materialism that came about due to prosperity. And then on the spiritual, where you would typically find these seekers, people who are looking for, for answers, um, instead, you found yet another prepackaged set of moral ideas and spiritual concepts to where all you had to do was go to church every Sunday and cut a check, and you kind of had that angle of your life figured out. Now, I'm painting a less than rosy picture of my grandparents and my parents, and I want to reiterate again that I think that these are fantastic people. A lot like the the opening uh, sort of chat that we had, um, I'm not calling them idiots by any stretch of the imagination, but 
they were kind of normies in this way, and they were afforded that by the economy of the time. That would be that would be my read on it. Okay, well, listen, I I understand that, and uh, I I've mentioned in uh, a couple episodes ago that that there are listeners who uh, want us to at least in part one for sure to explore the the impact of, of commercialism on on many on every one of the topics that we're we're examining because there is always a commercial footprint or implications. And in many cases, certainly, you know, some causal factors. Uh, I don't quite accept that. I mean, I can see it perfectly. Uh, I think it's a perfectly valid comment generally from uh, your generation's point of view. And I, I, I leave it to you to uh, have, you know, have that index against your particular uh, mm. tribe of people because you know them, you know, well. Um, but I think back, you know, Ezra Pound, well before the white picket fences and uh, the cars with fins, you know, he he said, we live in the age of science and abundance. Mm. And and this idea of, you know, I, I think if we peel back the, the layers, and I, I'm continually amazed by this, often through that I discover through peripheral reading, I'm not going out to research this, but I think a lot of of examples of things that we think of as emblematic of our time or emblematic of say the 70s or the 60s or what have you you know is in the counter culture we can we can peel it back and, and see these forces active you know well before we can see it in the 1920s uh, I, I think whenever we sort of pull on a thread with with any uh, kind of behavior, individual or societal, you can just start following that thread backwards and forwards. Um, and as a consequence, I've, I've formed a view that I call exploded view. And I think that every generation has in some way grown up in the wreckage of the generation before. Mm -hmm. I, I used to think of my mother as being a sort of an exemplar of her family upbringing. And I realized that's really not true. Her father was a small town doctor. He was 60 when she was born. Her mother was over 40. I've mentioned that. And uh, they were of an entirely different generation. I mean, they were a window back into the 19th century. So mm -hmm. I think that a lot of the the core values that uh, the conservative side of America talks about, they've been in a kind of uh, exploded kaleidoscopic state with every generation. And I think it's just gotten, there's just more and more detonations and more and more wreckage. Kind of like, like that great last scene of the movies of Risky Point. I don't know if people have seen that, but it's... Uh, uh, Michelangelo Antonioni, uh, vision of American excess and decline. And this house explodes at the end, this beautiful desert mansion. And uh, all of the wreckage pieces just float through the air in slow motion to a Pink Floyd song. Um, but one other thing I did think about, um, uh, while it's still easy to do, um, remember I said that my one of my crazy relatives... Uh, uh, a, a great uncle 
saved all the newspapers or, or many, a hundred major newspapers from around the world um, from the day I was born. And one of the things that I found fascinating about that was it, it really gave you a look at what money was worth. Like, you know, a, a standard house, a family house in America that was worth $5,480, you, know, you know? And there's like, what would a, you know, a fifth of vodka cost? Or what would a new car? So I, I built this whole sort of framework that way. Um, and it's, I think it would be interesting to do that, you know, while, while Gus is still newly arrived, Put a little index together. It's the kind of thing that in 18 yeah. years, I think he'll really appreciate, you know? It's yeah. a way of looking at things. But in, in, as, a, as a roundabout way of, of responding, um, I certainly understand the the economic impact. I absolutely do. And I think it's, it's more and more apparent right now as uh, we're very, in very sort of uh, unstable times, not just from COVID. Uh, globalization is still a relatively new thing. But I, I think there is more to it than, um, there has to be more to it is my argument, because you can look at people around the world who are truly impoverished, and, and they have very stable community and family and individual psyches. You know, not always, I'm not saying always, but I think that we, in America, I do think we tend to overvalue the concept of commercial value and economics. I, I, I really do. I think that's yeah. it's not the only explanation. Oh, no, for sure, for sure. I think we might be closer on uh, to the same page than we might initially think. So my, what I'm talking about with, with reference to this is specifically the question of how to live versus... Uh, 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 like sort of what you want to do with your life, right? Um, I think in terms of stability, I think you're you're absolutely correct. I'm, I I didn't mean to insinuate that the you know the '70s or the '80s were necessarily a more you know stable time across across the board, although perhaps they were. I don't know. What I mean very specifically is the kind of spiritual seeking. So I'm thinking very specifically about. Um, you know, it might not be necessarily appealing to our listeners, but if we talk in terms of spirituality, uh, hopefully not getting too far off topic here, but, you know, the 80s and the 90s seem to have this kind of rise, for example, in prosperity gospel churches. Now, there have always been, you know, uh, con men who go from town to town and, you know, get people to give them their money in the hopes that God will give things back to them. But the 80s, due to the medium of television, you know, this kind of thing really exploded. And I, I think back to, and I guess this is a question that's very difficult to answer because we're talking about millions and millions of subjectivities involved in this, but I would wonder if, let's say, in the 1880s, if the average American's conception of, you know, God and religion, what they actually believed spiritually whether or not that was kind of directly related to, you know, prosperity and material accumulation. And my hunch would be that it that it wasn't the same. You see the the move I'm trying to make there? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, I do. And I, I okay. think that, that I I think that's getting to well, uh I no, let me not paraphrase and, and you can just carry on with that. I want to make sure I do understand. Yeah, so 
what basically if if the if the initial question that we have is you know why did specifically my parents and my grandparents generation seem to focus so much on the the what rather than the how so that's my that's my big question that i'm moving from so my idea is that in terms of uh, materialism and spirituality those things became kind of packaged whether that's from you know the economy or sort of the 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 preponderance of you know uh, television and kind of ease of everything that was happening i feel like it sort of denigrated the concept of you know a community's religious and spiritual practices into a a, a transactionary thing that you, that could be ha- that could happen between you and god right and i guess what i was saying was that before then um whether or not you know we know exactly what the people believe to a t there did seem to be a more kind of uh, devout devout and uh, engaged spiritual practice before that okay you know let me insert something here that uh, I, I've just been rereading of late some of the really seminal uh, works of, of anthropology stuff that started coming out in the 20s, but through the sort of the golden era of the late 60s and 70s. Some really important people, Claude Levi-Strauss, a little bit of Margaret Mead, uh, Bateson, uh, Malinowski for sure. Malinowski is an interesting figure, uh, a bit clunky as a writer, um, but he was heavily involved in, in studying the Trobrian Islanders, The Trobrian Islands are just to the north of uh, the New Guinea mainland. They're part of Papua New Guinea. And they're very distinctive. They've they've attracted a lot of interest. They're short of Tahiti. They've often been seen as the the center of of, uh, a very eroticized culture of, of relaxed social and sexual mores. This is certainly something that Margaret Mead uh, picked up on, which has been disputed by many people. So they've been romanticized by the West. They've been uh, lab-ratted by the uh, the West. There's a lot of confusion. What a beautiful section of islands, beautiful people, and very dense and rich in culture. But one of the things that um, Malinowski devotes his really, his most famous book, I think, Argonauts of the Western Pacific, that's a great title, I think, is the Kula Ceremony, K-U-L-A, which is the central social environment uh, of the Trobrian Island peoples. And they're, they're a diverse group. It, it is a trade practice of trade routes which run clockwise, where the article exchange, there are two, they're effectively meaningless and valueless. They're, they're shell necklaces and, and armbands. Mm-hmm. But they, be, they take on this incredible significance of memory and story and obligation. And it, the whole deal is this constant energy exchange between the peoples. It holds everything together. And around and within and emanating from this ceremony, this practice, is a profoundly intricate uh, ecosystem of magic. You would really, really dig this because it is a golden example of what we mean by indigenous animist magic connecting to the social levels, 
to the cultural levels, lowercase c, the larger embracing human idea of culture with a capital C, and all of the spirit world, anything that we mean by the spirit world. It is a unifying principle, and it can be seen as a commercial activity. It is trade. I mean, they make these beautiful canoes, uh, and they have outriggers and claw-shaped sails, and the adventures that people have on these on this trading becomes an enormous body of mythology and folklore and storytelling and history. You know, real history. Someone fell overboard. Somebody died in transit. You know, big big stuff. And that is their organizing principle. And it it is absolutely embodied and imbued with magic at every turn. There's the magic of of there are about five different kinds of canoe magic alone, okay? Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's just this rich sense of, of, of shared ceremony. And everybody knows where they fit into that matrix. You know, mm-hmm. there's a tremendous sense of larger family framing that, that people understand and get with. And I think it's fascinating that it's based on kind of a meaningless commercial exchange. All mm-hmm. of the meaning lies at these deeper levels of, of values in, in, you know, in this other way of faith, belief, uh, behavioral structure, patterns of connection, loyalties, you know, love, love, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that's a value. Um, hard to talk about sometimes, but it's really, really interesting. And I wonder that if, what we're saying about, say, the situation, the social situation in the 1980s is further collapse of our Kula ceremony, you know, mm-hmm. that there is no unifying ceremony. There's nothing to absorb the individual uh, static, individual chaos. And so when the prosperity... Uh, wheel stops at any time or just slows down uh panic sets in yeah no i like that a lot i'm going to think about that some more uh i'm gonna in particular do some more research into this coolest ceremony because it sounds awesome i'm already brainstorming things that rios and i could do with gus and our immediate family and even our extended you know friend family community Right of this this kind of gift exchange as uh, an energy exchange, a unifying energy exchange, rather than sort of hey, this is cool. It's a fork, but it's also a laser pointer. You know? Yeah, um, yeah. So that's, that's the kind of thing. Yeah. So that that's super cool. I'm gonna gather my thoughts on that. I have uh, for next time. I have some things written down um, that we don't have to get into right now, but they are also possible avenues. Uh, Chris and I are, are going back and, you know, really doing some work to, I'm taking live notes and, and also taking notes after I listen to it again, because Me we want to make sure that we're, you know, that we're on this kind of thing. So some other things that I've been thinking about, um, are the control of the different, uh, mediums that, that Gus is exposed to, as opposed to a control of thought or thought systems. Oh, that's um, a fascinating topic. Yeah, because I've been, uh, I listened recently to a podcast with a guy named Bob Dobbs, who uh, is this fascinating guy. He's 98 years old, and he uh, he knew Marshall McLuhan and Gurdjieff 
and Duchamp and, you know, all these different figures. And he's kind of this kind of wacky guy who's uh, selling this kind of immortality elixir online now. Um, although he is 98 and he looks great, so it might work. Um, and he, he talks to this being called Ion for 12 hours a day on the internet. You can go and listen to 31,000 hours. Oh, no, 31 thousand yeah i think it's might be thirty one thousand hours that seems like too many but um just just you know entire databases full of conversations that he has with this you know sort of um, angelic intelligence very interesting character but that got me thinking all about you know marshall McLuhan and the medium is the message or the medium is the massage depending on what edition of the book you're talking about and and how there might be an inherent problem with um not what I tell Gus, uh, or or how I I kind of tell him to think, but the the mediums through which Gus receives information itself. So that's 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 one thing. I think that's probably a pretty big topic. Uh, I also have on here uh, the concept of learning how to listen, um, and I don't mean that in terms of you better listen to me. I mean that in let's say listen with a capital L. And I, I think you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, and then there's some other kind of like sub notes to all those things, kind of meditation. I wrote down, you know, unifying ceremony and energy exchange as you were talking right now. So I'm going to compile all of these thoughts and uh, and we can get cracking on the next episode because I think, I think we've put a lot of cool stuff out on the table here. But I'll turn it over to you before we uh, make the switch here um, for any kind of final thoughts on this. Well, I think we've laid some groundwork for uh, a, a very uh, provocative next episode. Uh, people who do follow the podcast closely will, will realize that we we are focusing more on, on this issue of, of childhood and the evolution of individuals within a society, however large that is, from a small uh, indigenous village to uh, a giant complex uh, end of empire civilization such as ours. Uh, we're going to get around to the, the, some of the broader things that, that we spoke about, but I, I think this is very interesting. We need to sort of stick with it for a little bit longer. I, um, I had made a, an elliptical reference last time to something that I think I would like to pick up in, 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 in the future, if not next episode at some point, of, that is related to, to Gus's uh, future in, in terms of... Um, I'm at, personally at least seeing... Uh, a kind of neutered sense in 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 young boys, a, a very different uh, approach to to raising boys. I, I do have um, a statistic from my data analytics that says that the phrase toxic masculinity has appeared uh, an alarming amount more uh, than just simple masculinity in the last mm. two years. I think that's mm. a very telling. Uh, point. I think it's a problem. And I think yeah. that uh, for people raising uh, sons of any age, I, I think that's a really uh, a difficult sort of issue. Um, on a more positive note next time, I, I, I would like to um, mention a very, very interesting initiation practice, uh, which is more of a process than it is a rite. It, it goes on, um, which is... It, it was done in New Guinea and it has broken down. It's called They Carry Leg. And it is very much about pubescent uh, 
well, post-puberty and, and really getting into the dating scene and getting into the emergence of genuine sexual practice and how that is absorbed and dealt with within indigenous communities. One, uh, or you know, a few in particular, it's a New Guinea practice. Um, we also have at some point to talk about, I think, um, a link to our discussion of archetypes in, in part two, um, a look back at some of archetypal children uh, in myth, story, legend, religion, uh, they, they occupy a, a very, very important point. I mean, Christ said, bring, bring the children unto me. Uh, every culture has a very, very special relationship to children. Uh, and I think that could be a huge uh, discussion point. So we've got a lot to talk about next time. Um, but I did have, I did save one. Uh, the, the practical tips are what I'm calling sort of psychic defense and personal enlightenment, if that's not too presumptive an idea. Uh, I, I, I do want to share some practical tips in, in part one, uh, many of which come from uh, the work that I did for uh, the big creative writing textbook, which has now been turned into Rutledge Press. So I have that to end on, David, if, if, if uh, you uh, have anything more to say or if we need to do any more housekeeping. Um, no, absolutely not. I'm uh, anxious to hear. These are, uh, so the people know, over on the, the paywall side, we often get these tips and also dreams, which um, I promise you are about 150,000 times more interesting than the usual uh, you know, well, I had a dream yesterday where I was a bull and I was castrated, you know, that kind of thing. Like Chris's dreams are um, stories unto themselves and often leave the episode uh, with a really, with a lot of stuff to think about. So I just had to do a quick little pitch there, but uh, please take it away. Okay. Well, yes, on, on the dream note, the one coming up is, is yeah, it's worth it. It's fun. The banger. Oh, I'm yeah, excited. It's fun. But here's a practical tip. Uh, one of the key uh, directions in, in my approach to developing uh, the imagination, which a lot of people say you can't do, and I, I firmly disagree with that. I, I break the, the, the idea of imagination down into alertness, memory, and the capacity for surprise. But certainly getting our senses working and, and getting synesthesia going, the blending of senses, getting alert to our physical existence. Uh, there are so many examples uh, from people around the world, and I was tremendously inspired, as I've said, by the Solomon Islanders, who just seem to be so hyper-present. Uh, and one of the things uh, they would they taught me is, is very simple. If you're in the habit of, of any kind of journal entries or diary entries or a social media post every day, this is not any more onerous than that. It's just one extra mission to accomplish every day. Just give it a try for seven days. Give it all you have for seven days. It's very simple. Before you go to sleep at night for seven days, record as in physically write something down or get it on your voice recorder, but something, some embodied expression. Don't just let, let it sit sort of ghostly like in your head. One example of a distinctive sound 
that you've heard from the day. That's simple. It could be an empty plastic milk container regaining shape. It could be the way toilet paper sounds when it's ripped off. That's different than an envelope being opened or a piece of typing paper you know, torn in half or Kleenex ripped out of a box. Some precise little sound that is in, just distinctive that you've heard and remembered and write it up in just a few short sentences. Try to really embody that sound. And I guarantee you that if you make a real discipline of that for even a short period of time, like a week, you will have a, pers- a really interesting perspective shift. It's, it's these little things, little perspective shifts. This is the whole idea that ancient cultures have had. Many people have had this. It's, it, if you go for the gold, the big, you know, the big change, well, it never happens. It never happens. Small incremental changes to alertness change the world. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the second half of No Country. This is the Patreon exclusive segment. Chris, just you hanging in there? Doing good? I am. I am. I'm doing really, really well. You know, we had a thunderstorm here yesterday, and uh, I've had some more clarity about, you know, clarity is always such a good thing. Uh, well, most always. Maybe maybe that's too broad a generalization, but it's good in most cases, I, I feel. And I've had some clarity about, you know, what it is that we're, we're hoping to do with the series, and certainly with uh, the part two segments for our uh, Patreon subscribers. Uh I think it's an interesting uh, thing. I mean, it, it's very simple, but um, here it is. Um, I don't know how familiar people are with the Lyceum movement, which also was connected with the Chautauqua, Chautauqua movement, as in Chautauqua, New York, is where it first started. These were, uh, do you know what I'm talking about, David? Do you, have you, are you familiar? Okay, this is a really important, uh, and they're unique um to America, in the sense they 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 are similar ideas that that um, developed in in Europe uh, and uh, certainly England and very much Australia, but but it's an American model. Uh, they were traveling lecture uh, circuit entertainments. They're kind of uh, the smart thinking person's version of vaudeville. They had uh, a lot of things in common with vaudeville. Uh, the Lyceum movements uh, movement was was uh, earlier, is late eight late eighteen hundreds, sort of late nineteenth century, through to uh, a little bit after World War One, uh, and radio had a great deal to do with the replacement of it because that that uh, that style of of possible entertainment and in education became available in other ways, but uh, William James, who is a hero of uh, both David's and mine, uh, was a prominent speaker. Uh, name anyone from the late 19th, early 20th century. Mark Twain, all of the major uh, female figures. There was a mixture of, of, of politics. The women's suffrage movement had a lot of support on the both the Lyceum and Chautauqua circuits. Uh, the Chautauqua uh, program became a little bit more populist, 
William Jennings Bryan spoke often. They were often held at fairgrounds and used tents. So they kind of bridged that world of the circus, the carnival, and the religious revival. Uh, and the Chautauqua institution is still still going. Uh, some people may have concerns about a religious aspect to it, but I did some research on it the other day, and it's the most non-denominational, inclusive uh, kind of institution that I can possibly imagine. But these were really excellent ways of getting cutting-edge uh, knowledge, questions, discussion happening oftentimes in rural parts of America uh, that, you know, Mechanics Hall, uh, those kinds of things, which still exist in many cities. I used to live right next to a, a little one uh, out in very rural Australia. And there were these beacons of culture and possibility and shared community that I think was just really inspiring. So that's my thought about what it is that we're hoping to do. And I, I think it's a wonderful American tradition of the Lyceum and Chautauqua movements. Uh, people who might have read uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, uh, that was the first time I ever heard of Chautauquas. Um, it's a term that Persig uses for his little aside chats. But I think it's a really important idea that it, it, it is a populist uh, democratic grassroots approach to intellectuality and curiosity about the world that steps free of the academic uh, parameters, which are often so restrictive and so alienating to so many people. So that was one little moment of thought I had that. So you're telling me, you're telling me that there used to be itinerant concert-like podcasts. Yes, that's exactly the way to put it. That's exactly the <laughs> way to put it. Traveling gypsy bands of pundits that would go from place to place and pontificate. That's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. That would, it's funny because you and I have talked about that, and that's something. That's kind of a goal that we have. It's the part of being the professionally curious individuals. Um that would be something that I would love to get going, especially, you know, hopefully if the um, the world, I was about to say goes back to normal, as if we know what that <laughs> even means. But yeah. if, uh, I'll say I'll say this, if the world begins to relax its travel restrictions eventually and its sort of uh, rules and mandates for gathering in, in public spaces, uh, that would be something that I would love to do for a living is to travel and talk about these kind of things. And I think not to get too into it, but I do think that that is the direction that a lot of this kind of stuff, like what we're doing here will go in, in the way that there have, you know, always been concerts, you know, you buy the album, you can listen to it a hundred thousand times, but you know, you want to see the band perform it live. Um, yeah. Live, live podcasts will definitely make a comeback in that respect. I think so too, you know, and I, one place, you know, 
Uh, I mean, we've talked about our, our documentary film idea, which uh, would would call me back to Oklahoma as we go in mm -hmm. search of uh, a legendary mythical lake monster. But there's a fantastic old opera house here out on the edge of Death Valley, which is just about the perfect place for me to welcome you if you came out this way to do Ooh. something live. So. Yeah. We got a lot of tricks up cool. our sleeve. We we've so got cool. a lot of ideas, but it is interesting that every time you think of of something you know new, if you really look at it a different way, you see there's always a tradition and a history and a labyrinth of connections, you know, that mm -hmm. have, that have mm -hmm. made it possible. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's funny, one of the main streets that's a bit to the west of me is actually Chautauqua Street. There so you go. There you go. That is fun. kind of fun. It's a wonderful word. Uh, it's a Native American word. It's it's a wonderful word. And it, I love how the idea, you know, is associated with a specific town in New York, but it became an ongoing enterprise and indeed an institution, but also a lovely verb, you know, mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and one of our, yeah, I mean, that's a great thing to do with people, you know, mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. a lot more than, you know, that's a lot better than just, hey, let's have a party, you know? Yeah, yeah. Imagine going to a party and having people talking about cool shit and you could drink a beer and watch them talk about cool shit. Maybe I'm showing what a nerd I actually am, but that sounds like a good time to me. Especially, you know, if if you get progressively drunker throughout the evening, that just sounds that just sounds great. You know, wake up with a little that, bit of a hangover and some things to think about. Yeah, you had too much to think. You know, um, <laughs> you know, it's uh, I I think that's an informed sense of party. It's what we mean by the search party that we hope this section uh, of No Country is about an ongoing investigation. Uh, an adventure, an adventure. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. On that note, where shall we pick up this conversation this time? Okay. All right. Well, um, I have one uh, really funny anthropological thing that I, I do want to get to, but I, I wanted to start us off uh, connecting with, with how we've gotten to this point. We've, this is our eighth uh, behind the paywall episode and we've been exploring a very uh, well we'll see how complicated it is it's certainly a complex idea of culture with a capital C and the metaphor paradigm we've been talking about is the ghost radio signal a kind of blend of Jung's idea of the collective unconscious and Rupert Sheldrake's notion of morphogenetic fields. So we're we're stepping across a lot of interesting boundaries. But lately, uh, we or how we've started talking about is one of the one of the tools to look at, which is both a language tool and a symbolic conceptual uh, tool, is the notion of characters, which led us to the discussion of archetypes. And I think we still need to to spend some time with that. And one of the, the mechanisms and, and practical uses of deploying archetypes uh, in a kind of um, spiritual, magical technology sense that we've been looking at is, is the tarot deck. 
So we'll we'll get to that in a moment. But I, I wanted to throw out uh, a kind of bold assertion because I think sometimes those are good touchstones. Uh, they they throw some sparks if you you know heave stones and iron at them. They 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 give off some heat. They get you going. So here's my possible assertion here. Characters, as in characters we identify, whether they be through myth, legend, folklore, literature, uh, or in our daily lives, you know, Uncle So-and-so is a real character, you know, characters are the argument against identity. Think about how you and I have talked about the obsession in the modern age with individuality, particularly as put forward and as constantly, not so much broadcast as it bombarded us with through advertising and through, you know, customize this plan to suit your needs, build your own burger, design your own pizza. You know, you are the individual, the me generation, on and on and on. That's a real problem today with this sense of identity crisis. Identity is one of the most common words in mainstream media at, at the moment and has been over the last 12 months. We have identity crises. We have identity theft. We have identity politics. We have identity everything. And that struck me as a little bit like the difference, the problem or the conflict between equity and equality. I wonder if there isn't this a kind of resonant uh, our listeners know that we're, we're using terms like resonance and frequencies uh, in keeping with our metaphor and guiding principle, Vibes. the ghost radio. Yeah, exactly. All of those kind of, of broadcast uh, mag sort of psychomagnetic uh, radiant uh, terms. But equity and equality seems to me to have the same problems as identity and individuality. You know, we're, we're, we, we've kind of compromised the notion of identity in, in, mm -hmm. in such a peculiar sort of way. But if you think about it in a positive sense, the fact that you can relate to characters as different as, say, Romeo and Juliet and Yosemite Sam or SpongeBob SquarePants, you know, I think that is absolute proof that we are not focused, stable, uh, self-contained psyches. We have many characters within us. We are all communities. And if we just accepted that, um, yeah. Yeah. you know, I, I think we'd be a lot saner, but certainly a lot happier. You know, let those characters out inside you, you know? Um yeah. So that's my starting point. And I think that gives us a basis for understanding how it is we do relate to, to different characters, whether they be symbolic figures on an occult card deck, whether they be cartoon characters, whether they be figures from real life that are inspiring sort of heroes. You know, mm -hmm. I, I think there's a reason for our, that resonance. There's, and there's a mechanism for it. It's because there's a whole lot of different people within us all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I really like the idea of allowing a character to live inside of you. 
And I think that's the key there between uh, the difference between character and identity. Identity to me seems very much to be isolating and compartmentalizing different parts of your personality and then slapping a pre-made label on that. Uh, it's it, it's putting a pin in a butterfly, right? So you're just, you're just this big walking museum of pinned butterflies with little labels on them that, you know, let everybody around you know uh, who you are, what you think about things, and where you fit within the social structures. But characters, if they are these kind of, you know, embodiments of, of, of spirit, allowing a character to live through you, well, a character is a bunch of different things all at once, right? And to have a bunch of things that are a bunch of things uh, living and acting and being sort of free within your spirit space or headspace or however you want to put that is so opposed to the idea of, of pinning something down and putting an ism or a label of any kind really on it i think it's a really at first it wasn't quite clicking for me but i think once you elaborated on that i think it makes perfect sense right a, a character is um an encapsulation of a spirit but it's sort of many things at once it has an ineffable quality that uh, that identity just really doesn't have, you know. <laughs> Even if I say something like, you know, I'm uh, I'm an American, right? Well, that that feels it, it feels like that that means very specific things to very specific people. But if you tell somebody, uh, you know, SpongeBob SquarePants is alive in my heart right now. If they don't put you in a straitjacket and take you off to a mental institution, it's it's a very it's a very evocative and I think important distinction between those two things. Well, I think it is, you know, and and what you've you've gotten onto there is it really is about you know pinning butterflies to a corkboard as opposed to our a kind of driving uh, master metaphor of keeping a butterfly alive in your mouth. You know, that goes back to the well beginning done. of yeah. the series. And and for people who uh, need a reminder or didn't catch that, it, it we we started off with a, a story of mine from, from New Guinea days of, of, of studying uh, sorcery and, and local magic. And uh, my mentor got me to climb a, a, a hand over fist embankment in, in dense heat and humidity with a live butterfly in my mouth, a large one, uh, with the idea of keeping the butterfly alive. And, you know, this is uh, where David and I take, this is one of our, our ongoing issues with, with science as it's come out of the 19th century, this unfortunately mechanistic uh, paradigm and, and materialist uh, that has, you know, served us so well as a species. It, it's, answered a lot of questions, but it's killed a lot of animals. It's killed a lot of connections. It's made things compartmentalized and static. It's given us an obsession with the either or schism, the either or conflict. It's given us the, the Cartesian dilemma of mind versus body, not mind and body, but certainly not any unified sense. It's created an enormous existential uh sense of cognitive distance because we we know life is more animate and magical and mysterious and composite and it's more of a verb than a noun 
you know, mm-hmm. it really is. So, you know, characters, what we're saying here is that breaking out of that static sense of pinning down identity, you know, because, you know, you really think about that for a moment. Does anyone really want their identity pinned down, pigeonholed? We've got you, we've got your number. I mean, there's no evolution. There's no possibility for growth. There's no dynamic engagement. I mean, that, that sounds like a kind of museumized death to me. Yeah. You have to, you have to kill it before you can put it on display essentially. And I think that is the major error that a lot of folks who are on the internet at the current time are making. They think that if they add enough, uh, almost like a NASCAR driver with all the sponsors plastered to their car and to their, you know, their jumpsuit, um, you know, if they have enough of those, people will know what they're all about. And it, it just doesn't do anything. It just looks like a big, ugly mess. You know, thinking about the difference here between character and identity uh, I'm thinking about how identity feels like a really boring textbook that you that you kind of are forced to read you know was that somebody shoved into your hands some kind of professor or something and said you know memorize uh, the facts from this book and I want you to be able to re you know regurgitate these facts to me at a moment's notice um, and then the character reminds me of the concept that we talked about last time more of hieroglyphic silence hieroglyphics in general right but hieroglyphic silence in particular where you are very explicitly according to the activity to the the meditation you're very specifically not supposed to be reading words or necessarily trying to put into words the feeling that you're getting when you are sort of wound up and then placed in front of the picture of the hieroglyphics. Like there's something, I don't know, maybe you have something to, to say about that. In fact, I'm sure you do, um, about this, this kind of difference between words as the two of us are writers and words are kind of like our stock and trade versus this kind of um, animate feeling of hieroglyphic silence. And I can, I can, I can word that better if that didn't make any sense. Oh no, it makes makes good sense to me, uh, okay. and it might be a good chance to uh, uh, pick up on an announcement we made in part one about a competition, a contest, mm-hmm. a contest, a challenge, a challenge, an opportunity um, for our subscribers to create an original new. Uh, addition to the tarot deck, the major arcana of 22 symbolic archetypal figures. Uh, Something that speaks to our zeitgeist, the ghost of time right now, the the cultural mood. Uh, We're going to um, keep you posted about this. You you have a little bit of time, but um, I think that come... um, September, we'd like to uh, to see the results of that. And we're going to have a prize of one of two books. Writing by Drawing, When Language Seeks Its Other, and or uh, Seeing with Fresh Eyes, Meaning, Space, Data, and Truth by Edward Tuft, who's a very interesting theorist about symbol systems, design, the concept of design, and design within conceptual thinking 
Uh, very, very interesting. The Writing by Drawing is an anthology with some really interesting contributors, including Susan uh, Hiller, Brian Geisen, Jean Dubuffet. But behind it all is the question that David raises, which is uh, the hieroglyphic science, silence idea. Uh, and we earlier, um, they have shared a, an excerpt from William Burroughs talking about the, the cognitive benefits in trying to silence that inner voice that you hear when you're reading something to gain control of that channel, uh, which is a very, very important uh, idea. If, if you can make any headway on that at all, you enjoy a very peculiar perspective shift. It's very powerful. And we have something really strange going on with language. And a large part of what this series is, is about is trying to get to terms with just how strange language is because we're embedded within it. We're suspended within it, as uh, Niels Bohr, the great physicist, said. Um, we're inhabited by it. Um, we're embodied. We're a part of it in, in such a way as it's very hard to get an aerial view. And pursuing the hieroglyphic silence as a kind of discipline is one way, one way to do that. Um, and I have a, I have a great uh, other metaphor for this, which I've just picked up in, uh, I, 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 had, I had known about it, but I've been rereading uh, re um, uh, Malinowski's book, uh, Argonauts of the Western Pacific, about uh, the Trobrian Islanders and the magic rituals surrounding their core ceremony of the Kula. But there is a phrase which I had heard when I was in New Guinea, and I don't, I, I just didn't understand what it meant. And, you know, first lesson is, if you don't understand something, ask, because this is a great chance to, uh, it's a very peculiar, but the literal translation is decapitating the canoe's mind. I want that to resonate a moment. You heard me correctly. I said decapitating the canoe's mind. Sounds aggressive, sounds kind of violent. Sounds, well, it's the magic practice of working yourself so fully into the ritual canoes, which are these beautiful, painstakingly carved works of practical adventure art, uh, which are made by the most skilled uh, members of these communities. We're talking just north of the New Guinea mainland, Trobrin Islands. Very famous, beautiful, uh, looked at by anthropologists for many reasons. But these canoes are these amazing outrigger things with crab claw sails that undertake a massive counterclockwise and clockwise circular trade routes in a magic ongoing ceremony of, of community connection. But when it gets to decapitating the canoe's mind, it means your magic is focused and strong enough to really steer the canoe the way you want to go. You're, mm -hmm. you're working your way so fully into the canoe that it's no longer separate from you. And that mm -hmm. is exactly the opposite point of view to the great 19th century scientists in natural history were so often Sadly, you know, uh, 
collecting dead birds and nets and, and pinning butterflies mm. to cork mm. boards. That was a great way to learn in certain ways. And I certainly understand that you have to dissect some cadavers to understand bodies. I get that. But that's not the only way, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's such a great turn of phrase. And it makes me wonder today with our smartphones, if the canoe hasn't decapitated our minds in that respect. And, you know, and we're kind of being steered and driven by this this force. I really don't think that it can be overstated um, how much like a malevolent entity a lot of the technology that we're using these days really is. Um, and I think that if the, you know, if the street goes one way, it goes the other way too. And I'm, I'm wondering about, you know, our relationship to the canoe, essentially. I don't know if that's too big of a topic or not, but yeah, it's just where my mind was going. Well, I, I think what what you're saying is is exactly echoes the enormously uh, prescient Thoreau when he said, "We have become the tools of our tools." I think we've I've mentioned that phrase before. I, I'm haunted by that because that was said in in the 1840s. You know, well before the Industrial Revolution really kicked into gear. And I, I think you're right about uh, technology having um, kind of decapitated uh, the mind of our canoes. And we, we, we've kind of lost sight of, of who's steering the canoe. I mean, in, in a very crude sense, I think that is a large part of the alienation, disempowerment, disenfranchisement, and, and sense of, of confusion and uh, existential chaos, if not despair, that people feel today. So... We got to get back driving the canoe, you know. What do you? Let me let me ask you this. This is a personal question, right? So, the concept of decapitating the canoe's mind in in your life, and I'd be happy to answer this for me. In your life, what what canoes are you steering that could really use some decapitation? Okay, well, I'll, I have an answer for that, I, but I want to link this idea, this beautiful, weird phrase, with mm -hmm. one of your phrases and uh, a, a paradigm framework that you introduced in regards to it, specifically the, the tarot deck, but I, I think we mean it more broadly, of a way of embodying as in making physical and sensible and tangible and capable of some sort of access and manipulation, a quantum level of mystery and potentially chaos that would otherwise swamp us if we didn't have mechanisms like the tarot, uh, tarot or, or like poetry or, or, or music. Or there are many different mechanisms we use, and all of them, in my mind, and I think you would agree, all of them are really fall under the rubric of magic in the sense of what the Trobrian Islanders, how they define magic. So, in terms of um, what canoe uh, I need to look at, the big change for me um, over the last, I don't know. Well, it certainly came out as a part of, of working on this a giant textbook, which took me away from uh, my other, you know, creative projects. But it was a really good discipline, as, as oftentimes that is. It 
it's really reminded me, and also I think embarking on this podcast series with you is to to really embody within my own psyche, my relationships with other people. And one of our key points is is that oscillation is 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 an oscillation. They're not two separate things. You know, you know, it's it's not like well, Chris is is particle and relationships are wave. No, I I I'm wave. My whole thing is wave. You know, and we 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 keep the relationships moving in this active, dynamic, oscillating sense uh, through a kind of magical energy and and certainly a commitment, but. A kind of magical belief in it, and I, I think the one thing that I've I've realized is that if I really yield, and everyone hates that idea of yielding and surrendering, but you know we can't we that's bad you can't do that, but if I yield and surrender to my magical instincts, to just accepting a kind of mystery, intuitive, uh, hieroglyphic silence. Uh, all of the stuff that isn't easily explained, uh, you know, Gilbert Ryle, the very, very important philosopher said, you know, not all questions are physical questions. And if I let myself just live on that level, for starters, I have good vibes. And I think that helps me give off good vibes. I, I, I have my groove. I've got my mojo. I really feel, I feel that. I feel centered within uh, sure, it's a kaleidoscopic, chaotic, messy uh, jigsaw, but it's a magical labyrinth that I feel empowered to deal with, you know. And that's when I'm 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 centered in the the dynamism of an oscillating wave. And when I break with that or lose faith in that or get attacked by the predatory uh, species of fatigue that we call uh, depression or despair or self-doubt or all of those, you know, things that are so easy to have to take on board, you know, they're in the air, they're, they're, they're magically in the air too. And, and people forget that they think, oh, no, these are, these are tangible realities. You know, this is the media, this is real news. Well, no, it's not real news necessarily. It's not. I mean, real is the conf, is it the most conflicted word there could ever be. So, as long as I keep to the magic in the canoe that made, and this is the beauty of of the Trobrian thing. This is why they have so many uh, interactive levels of magic. Is it becomes harder and harder for them to step away from it because it's so linked with. Well, this is where where David did this. And, and he tied the knot this way, or he, he used the ads this way. And we were talking about, you know, Gus, and we were talking with this, you know, it was this point in time, and there was this moment back to a relative or to another part of the world, and the story connects, you know, everything and carries us forward. And I think that's, that's how Culture with a capital C and how the ghost radio signal operates. In fact, I don't know, you know, we're, we're exploring what lies beyond that. But that's one of the practical uh, expressions, embodied expressions within our lives. Mm. So the message is, is trust in the magic, you know? Yeah, trust in the magic is great. And one great thing about the, the Ryle quote that you mentioned there about how not all um, 
the way I took it was no, not all answers have, you know, words, right? Like the, the, I was thinking, you know, has a, has a question, a big question that I've been thinking about ever been answered with a smell? Um, and the answer is that in fact it has, there have been very specific arcs in my life that have been sort of tied up and released from my mind by a particular smell. Usually it's a smell that, that links back to, to, to something else. And it's very difficult to put into words what I mean by that, but you know, seeing a particular bird land on a branch, oministic thinking, I'm not sure if oministic is a word, but it should be. Um, it's different than ownistic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, there's a lot of that going on too. I mean, you know, <laughs> anyway, um, but no, yeah, oministic is good. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it, it makes me think, you know, when, when people, you know, we're talking right now and everyone who's listening to this is listening to words that are being spoken. But one of the really important and I think practical elements of what is being said right now is how many quote unquote answers or maybe just you know maybe just kind of elliptical vibrations right can can be sensed through touch smell uh music art books all well books have words but all these different things that aren't just you know explanatory butterfly pinning i think are, are just massively massively important but I don't know if you want to go here now. I couldn't figure out a great way to sort of fit this in. But I, you had left me a note about potential things that we could talk about. And we've kind of mentioned the tarot a bit here or the, here and there. But um, you know, if, we, if you want to go in a different direction, I'll just say my piece here and we can, we can put a pin in this and come back to it. But... Um, we were talking about how the tarot and its ability to collapse quantum uncertainty into these kind of different funnels and tunnels. Uh, not It's not just a mechanism for changing the future, but also for changing the past. And you had mentioned connecting that with, uh, with Henri Brixen and, uh, and Sheldrake. And I just, I thought that would be a cool direction to head in, but we can, we can do that later as well. Okay, well, look, because you brought it, look, everything connects and, 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 you know, we have time. We'll, we'll, if we don't have time for this in this episode, we'll, we'll carry on. But one of the things that, that, that was that, uh, you, you said very pointedly and, and that the past may not be the past, which is the core idea of, of Bergson's creative evolution, which was the re, one of the key inciting influences on, on Rupert Sheldrake, that, that we've got a real sort of confusion about that. And um, when you said that, I had this wonderful image in my mind of the, uh, the original Independence Day movie, you know, the alien attack. And... Uh, Bill Pullman as, as president, what perfectly cast. 
And, you know, the the whole uh, of America is under attack. NORAD's just been destroyed. And uh, there's a question about, uh, well, why don't they take refuge at uh, Area 51, which is, of course, just up the road from me, because that's where the, you know, the aliens are stored. And there's a spaceship there. And Pullman just, of course, dismisses that. And the toady guy who is one of his advisors, really good character actor. I should remember his name. He's just fantastic. And uh, he goes, Mr. President, that's not entirely accurate. <laughs> and of course, it's not accurate at all. There's a, there's a crazy team of, of scientists who are out of their minds, you know, down in subterranean tunnels. They've got aliens preserved there is a spaceship and on and on and on so yes the past is definitely not the past that was uh, and and i think that's the idea of, of the quantum shakeup. and and what i would add to that is that one of our uh investigative tools is the proposition of of can quantum thinking even at at, at sort of an abstract metaphorical sort of level can that be used on different scales of, of existence, can it you know on the Newtonian scale, on the scale of neighbors and friends and babies and lovers and uh, problems that we face, you know, minute to minute, and I, I think it's worth looking at that as an idea, um, because if something like the tarot, if art, if philosophy, if if any kind of meaningful exchange between between people the idea of a chautauqua you know even just between two two people uh that could be exactly how some quant of some deep real quantumness is being projected up many layers and many levels and many scales and we may be able to look at those scales differently in a more dynamic more mysterious uh, less rooted in the independence on certainty, you know. Um, I think we said that that you know would we want more flexibility, more dynam dynamism? Would we be willing to trade some stability and certainty for more dynamism? And then you and I said yes, yes we would. And I think a lot of people agree with that. That that's that's what we're trying to get to. Um, so there's a lot of stuff going on there. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that, I mean, that is the, that is the uh, kind of soup or, you know, primordial condition for, for magical things to happen, right? So there's this whole element of uh, changing the past, which I think is really interesting because the first question would be, well, if you changed the past, how would you know? that you had changed the past because wouldn't it just seem like you're present and that's kind of a fun philip k dick uh you know time problem i suppose but i think that i have experienced that in in my life in some of these again kind of elliptical things where phases in my life seem to be ushered in with a motif and and see themselves out with a similar motif and there is something very fascinating that goes on where I have uh, memories of incidents that happen within this kind of overarching plot line of my life, right? And dependent upon the kind of magic 
um, thought uh, actions that I take uh, when I discuss these things with with people you know there are very different uh, uh, memories with the different people and you know and it, of course it's it's tempting to say and probably very true as well that you know people remember things in different ways that's just kind of how human beings work but I think that there is a kind of aesthetic uh, uh, feel to memories, right? Like how, for example, does a, a memory that maybe had uh, plagued me for months and months and months, how does that turn into a fond memory? How does that actually become something that I, that I look back on and think, oh, that was, that was great. It, it shouldn't really do that, right? I mean, a bad memory should just be a bad memory and that's all there is to it. But if there was some kind of change, functional change that happened to the past through this kind of, you know, quantum power, then that, that might be the mechanism by which that, that happens. Well, you know, one of the things that I think that needs to be said and thought about a great deal is that, that there is no practical consensus distinction between memory and perception on the very individual psyche level. I think one of the enormous problems of our time is that people actually think they have any idea of the past in terms of history. Uh, remember we talked about in an earlier episode, uh, one of my friends who has done a formal uh, research, a dimensional research uh, project with uh, quite a few people now that it's, it's ongoing where uh, people are, are housed in a kind of um, Airbnb sort of accommodation over a weekend with consent. And um, they're, they're monitored by video and recording in most of the rooms, not the bathrooms or the bedrooms, obviously, but in the communal spaces and generally. And then they're asked at various points to, to record or report on what they were thinking, you know, 15 minutes ago, half an hour ago, whatever. And the results were astonishing. And it was, it was really like just people in walking around in states of amnesia or Alzheimer's. And these are young, you know, or relatively young, fit, alert, you know, intelligent, educated people. And they simply had no idea of, of following their own uh, stream or train of thought. A very, very uh, disturbing, I think. Um, and something that it's kind of, we're going to have to, to, you know, deal with that. Culturally, we've got cultural amnesia, amnesia in a way that is frightening. So that people's sense of, of, knowing the past uh it, well it no there's there's no <laughs> there's no way to prove that at all it's quite pathetic i think we have much less sense of it than indigenous cultures that were entirely dependent on hard memory you know as in, in people you know when you know algata died then there would be a loss of 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 culture there would be a physical you know, but now we sort of think, well, everything's saved in the big internet of all things and nothing's ever really lost. And then we have, you know, you know, and with the proof of that is someone's tweet from when they were, you know, 18 and they weren't famous yet and they might have been drunk and angry about something comes back because someone has no plan in life but to review uh, what's going on, you know, <laughs> the and they lowest dig, form of life right now. 
uh, it just goes on and on and on. It's really, um, you know, it, it it's very, very strange. But I, to touch on, you know, you mentioned, you know, Philip K. Dick. And, and you know, one of the, I, I've said that the, the, the problem with the English language is really three key words, real, natural, and equal. And um, I think a fair bit of, of Dick's entire life work it, it, you know, deals with the question of what is real and all of the uh, ancillary uh, implications and consequences of that question. So we don't really know, really, really, you know, everything has got to be real, you know, keep it real, you know. We have no idea what we're talking about with that. And so the idea of what is really the past and what is genuine history, um, I mean, really, it, it it's just... It's a never-ending problem with language. It it, it is in, just built into that notion of real and all its uh, derivatives and associations, you know, in terms of, of just words. But I have a thought about of, of maybe where, because uh, I've just I did I did a, a book cover design for. Um, a Japanese publisher on a subject that just absolutely cracks me up. I think it's just, it's an anthropologist dream come true. And the Japanese are so good at giving those to us. But I think it's an odd link from uh, the point you just raised to, to the tarot and this idea of, of how to deal with quantum complexity in such a way that makes sense on a psychic uh, identity level, if we can't shed that word identity. I'm thinking of Japanese surrogates, the notion of, of hiring friends and family. Yes, uh, yes. Cuddlers, I mean, they, have, they have cuddlers that you can pay to, you know, to listen to you talk about your day, nothing sexual at all. I mean, it is such a peculiar form of of prostitution i can't off the top of my head remember the name of there, there was a woody allen story that he published in the new yorker about prostitution where uh men pay the to have intellectual conversations with yeah, the women right you know i can't remember it, it was very funny at the time and i i'm not a huge woody allen fan at all um but i think that was very funny but this idea that um you know, the, this strange sense of hiring characters in in very dimensional uh, terms. You're, you're not going to see a movie. You're not putting on virtual reality goggles. No, you're hiring an actor to be somebody at some occasion. So I, I did a little, uh, there's a great article in The Atlantic, uh, formerly The Atlantic Monthly, an interview with uh, the guy who founded the leading company. It's called Family Romance, which I think is very <laughs> odd. But I mean, think of this as you're, you know, in the, you know, starting your family, first child, first son, and you've got relatives all around, you know, you don't need to hire a family. Uh, you've got your own, <laughs> you've yes. got your own circus to attend to. But I love what his slogan is. It's so simple, but it's so creepy. And as we head into, 
you know, more automation and robotics. I mean, God only knows. But the, the slogan of his company, Family Romance, is more than real. Oh, dear. And I thought, you know, that gets to the, the power of archetypes. Yeah. Archetypes are characters that are larger than life. They're the size of legend and myth often, but they're somehow more than real, you know? And that, no wonder we get a little bit creeped out around the idea of archetypes because we think, oh, I don't know if I'm up to that. I don't know if I can cope with that. Right, right. Oh, dear. More than real. Yeah, that seems a bit sinister. And it also seems to tie reality to lack of satisfaction or maybe even lack of um, what's going on around you sort of conforming to the way that you wish it could be. Right. So so reality is just kind of fundamentally that way Um, for this week. What I'm going to be thinking about, and probably what I'm going to call the episode as well, is decapitating the canoe's mind, because I think that's a very powerful statement, and uh, or phrase rather, and also a very interesting thing to think with. And I think I think that's a good direction, actually, to go with what we're talking about here, because it feels like there's a lot of practicality that can come out of that. You know, what canoes do we have whose minds need to be decapitated there's the positive sense of integrating into a system so that you can steer better but you know decapitation there's separation right there you know like what needs to just kind of be you know cut off so that you can better function without it so what do you think about that for a direction for a next segment before we get into the practical tip and the dream I think that's a really good way to go. And for, for people who have been following the series, we we earlier in, in, in when we were doing only the part one segments, uh, we had, a, a, I, I think, a very uh, uh, interesting and, and well-received episode on on becoming headless and, and what that means in terms of, we're really talking about short-circuiting some very clunky logic systems both uh, cognitively and and socially, that that really restrain uh, any possible dynamic behavior and evolution. Uh, every, you know, every social system is always about limitation in some sense and providing structure. I mean, our own skeletons are limitations, and but they provide structure. It it isn't necessarily true that that every system, every hierarchical framework you know, is some sort of prison. That That's not what David and I are saying, and, that, and we don't think that's how it works. But there is a ratio of structure to limitation. That Notice that oscillation idea. Um, there is, we need to be attentive to that. And we feel that very acutely, I think, in hieroglyphic silence ways, in oftentimes in relationships, You'll notice, you know, you, you can get an intuitive vibe that th- there's just not the, the balance in this relation that I would like to have with these people or this person. And you, 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 it starts you thinking, hmm, there is more limitation than structure and reinforcement. And I think that we have these impressions all the time and we're not often sure of how to act on them or, or even how to articulate them. 
But I think magical systems like the tarot, like some of our own personal associative uh, frameworks and networks, those are ways to, to try to manage that deeply chaotic and oftentimes language-resistant uh, stuff that's going on all the time. And unfortunately, we've all been trained that that language is, is the solution. You know, if you can identify the problem, that's half the solution. Well, no, it's not. <laughs> you ask anyone who's ever found they have a trouble drinking, they go, well, I, I, I'm, hi, my name is this, and I'm an alcoholic. Well, that doesn't solve the problem. That, that, at, at the very best, that is the beginning. That's the beginning of a long, well, endless journey in terms of, you know. So I think that that is certainly worth exploring. Um, absolutely. And it, it we want to put a practical framework on things like the tarot. We're going to be talking about other kinds of disciplines that are sort of magical technologies, magical technologies uh, that, that can be, they're counter spells, um, they're, they're counter magic to uh, the confusion of our time. And, and in part one, we are, we are continuing to examine how the confusion takes shape, how it can be characterized, who or what is behind it, to what end, how much uh, self-responsibility can we take? Uh, Dave and I would like to think quite a bit, and that's the, the whole point of sort of magical uh, practice and, and self-assessment and some sort of critical thinking. Um, but how we can get more adept with our canoe magic into in kind of keeping with this Prime. And, and I think that's really important. I love the canoe uh, metaphor because I, I really love canoes and kayaks heavily. But I think that sense of navigation is so important. And to take back navigation from Google Maps and Siri and uh, the media and, yeah, I don't know, maybe our, our, our family and friends and to get more comfortable with our own canoe magic and oh, it's huge. that may guide us with, yeah. with who we really connect with. Yeah. It's, it's, it's enormous. The more and more I think about it, the more I think it has so many practical applications for exactly what you just said. I won't repeat what you just said because you said it so well there. Um, but yeah, no, I definitely think that decapitating the canoe's mind is, is a big no country, uh, saying now put that on a t-shirt or something like that send the proceeds to the people who invented it or something like that i don't know but um chris we're reaching the end of the episode here and um my favorite part of the whole conversation uh we get the practical advice and then the dream so please take it away Okay. Uh, the practical advice is, is, is intricate this time, and I, I don't apologize for that. It references something, and I didn't plan this, but David mentioned earlier, have you ever asked a question or had a, a question emerge, and the answer is, is a smell, or it's another sense, or it's, it's coming in from other channels? And I think this is the 
core idea to this segment and the idea of the ghost radio is maybe taking a break from some of the channels we're so dependent upon, some of the frequencies we listen and pay attention to a little too much, so that we might hear and be influenced by uh, some unassigned frequencies, something coming in from other places. I was uh, doing a Zoom meeting with some genuine anthropologists and uh, cultural historians, people who work in academia and who uh, mm-hmm. announced that at every point. And uh, I, I you know, was glad to be welcomed, but I'm not sure how welcomed I was. But the MC or moderator decided to choose uh, me to start with. And... Um, he asked me kind of a supercilious tone what my definition of culture is. And I think people who are listening have some idea that I have a few thoughts about that. Um, so my response was, when I was growing up, there were two uh, phrases, two expressions that I thought still really get it done. One is, what a bonus. And the other mm-hmm. is, that's bogus. Mm. And I could see him on the screen and uh, his face definitely (laughs) sort of wavered with a little bit of of, uh, uh, uncomfortable uncertainty. (laughs) One of the other attendees was was actually sort of vibing out some worry, you know, who who is this guy, Chris? Is he on drugs? Is this is he on or has he stopped taking his medication or or is he just saying kind of fuck you to to all of us? Right. And there was there was tension. There was tension. Mm-hmm. But of course, you know, these these people are a little bit right angled and they're not, you know, just going to give ground too quickly. So the moderator uh, said, uh, I don't think you understood my, my question. <laughs> and I said, I, I think I did. When when we were growing up, a, a rainy Sunday afternoon watching Ma and Pa Kettle or the Bowery Boys or Francis the Talking Mule, I think that my peer group just associated that and accepted that as legitimate time travel. I mean, we were surrounded by dinosaurs and cowboys and astronauts. Time travel just seemed to be uh, quite a logical extension. Mm-hmm. And the whole group by this point was just, you know, they were wavering in absolute uncertainty and anger. You know, the key right. thing is anger presented with an unfamiliar response that they couldn't package and pin to the corkboard. They were getting nervous, anxious and pissed off. Yeah. But, you know, think about it. I mean, I, I say that the, the process of explanation has a great deal to do with the process of elimination. And I just simply, I wasn't meaning to have a go at them. I was serious. I was i was answering their question, but not with a kind of explanation, but with a demonstration, a performance, embodied mm-hmm. expression. Mm-hmm. I mean, think seriously about, you know, what my answers were. I was talking about identification and connection with language, two phrases in the first case. Yeah, in, right. in the second case, television shows that were from an entirely different era with a whole bunch of factors behind it. The economics of cheap reruns for the TV stations. Uh, you know, there were a lot of social and, and practical factors, but it was part of a worldview at the time that, that people don't 
have today. I know my students don't. So there was a, a generational aspect being fixed in time to some extent. And what we mean by mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. uh, which is an important sort of idea of culture. So my message here is the key thing is to pay attention to language and to not just accept the terms and the frames that people hand you, even well-meaning and you know well-intentioned people with with just out a lot of thought, mm -hmm. listen to what they're asking and and respond in in the from the frame and from the point of view that is meaningful to you, and always yeah. if you can, try to be expressive, performative, demonstrative. You know, don't just we don't need more explanations. Explanation is like elimination. You know, we don't mm -hmm. need that. We need more internation. Internation mm -hmm. is my mm -hmm. new coined word. So mm -hmm. that's uh, uh, the practical psychic defense uh, and psychic navigation tip for uh, this yeah. episode. No, I think that's great. And what I, the way I interpreted it when I, when you said it, uh, you know, what a bonus and, and that's bogus. Like I I was actually reading that as uh you know you demonstrating a, a value system that exactly a, sh a shared value system that you all had that's 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 what I would have taken that to to mean when I heard it but I got to say the uh, your description of their uh, consternation was absolutely <laughs> delightful I, I found that oh, very very thank funny. you but yeah um, you could see them you could see those people oh dear. Yeah, yeah, just, just like, just like, what the hell is this guy's problem? Just answer the question. Well, he did, he did answer. You know, it's just, I, I love that. Um, I think that this is a much more common practice, obviously, in uh, perhaps Eastern languages, but definitely Eastern uh, religious practices, spiritual practices, things like Bud Buddhism with koans and things like that. I've always loved thinking about one hand clapping and things like that because you know again an answer the point of all those is that an answer might not come to you in words so they set up this uh you know we we think of it and by we i mean i guess me and many other sort of western people who are you know trying to do the same thing that i am we, we tend to think of it as a word puzzle with a solution right uh, and perhaps it does have a solution, but that solution isn't coming through. Uh, well, here, let me explain this to you with bullet points, right? Like here's a here's point number one and point number two, and point, and then here is how point number one and two link together into my grand theory of whatever. It doesn't always work that way. Sometimes it's a smell or a sound or a bird or you know. Uh, you know, you rub your dog uh, after the dog comes in out of the rain and your hand is covered in fur and it and it smells really bad. And then all of a sudden, a light bulb flicks off and you, you don't know what did it, but you and you don't even really know what the problem was that you were trying to work out. But something just flicks over and you're like, ah, right, got it. So, you know, that's that's what I took from from all of that. But so chopping at the bit here dream. okay dream okay time. here's the dream oh dear i find myself 
in a small town in Indiana. I don't know why or how I know that, but it's a small town in Indiana. And it's an odd town because there's nobody around the main street. Nobody. It's just vacant. I think, oh, it's, but it's not a movie set. I'm sure of that. And I'm damn hungry. And I walk past this diner. I can see, like, I could break in there. And I could cook myself some eggs, something simple and fast, right? I think, no, 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 I, I can't do that. I'm not going to get caught, you know, breaking into a business in this weird town in the Midwest. No, no. So I look down the street and it gets kind of, uh, it looks sort of interesting. It's it's not, there's no sense of, of decay and uh, degeneration that we see in a lot of American small towns today. It's kind of idyllic, but 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 reasonable. And some big shade trees and stuff. So I, I start walking and I do smell some food and that kind of. And I reach this house. It looks like it would have been an old, uh, a single family mansion, you know, for like a doctor or a banker at one point. But it's not doing so well. Maybe, well, it's turned into a boarding house, I see from the sign. And there's a guy who looks incredibly old who's out on the porch. And he's kind of acting like a barker at, at a carnival or a strip show. And he's waving me in. And as I get too close to him, I see that he's this, he looks like a waxwork figure come to life. But he's really, really friendly. And he says, come inside for the service. There's always a good spread and by that, I take it to mean, well, okay, maybe I might have to listen to someone do a sermon or something, but I could get a good feed. I could have, you know, a nice lunch, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm really hungry. So I go inside and it it is a, a former sort of mansion that's been, uh, it, it's not in, in great shape, but it's not in bad shape. And it is a rooming house and the the renter's, or people staying there are, are gathered in uh, what would have been the formal dining room. It's still a dining room, but not quite as formal. A little bit tatty, but it's okay. Mm -hmm. I do smell food, but the table is completely bare in front of quite a long table, long oval table. But the thing is, the people have these very, very strange masks on. And... I look at them and I, I, I'm not quite sure what to make of them. They're, they're a little bit grotesque, but they're serious. You know, they're, they're really done with a purpose. And one of them, I think, God, is that, is that Shelley Winters? Hmm. Is that an imitate of Shelley? And I think, nah. And there are a couple that I don't really get, but I look at one and I think, my God, God damn it, that's Ernest Borgnine. The actor. I know what Ernest Borgnine's face looks like. And that, Matt, and then I think, oh, my God. And I have this hieroglyphic silence moment of there's only one movie that I know of that Ernest Borgnine and Shelley Winters are in together, and it's the Poseidon Adventure, you know, where the ocean liner mm -hmm. uh, keels over mm -hmm. and they have to get out. And, oh, my God. Well, the people sit down at the table. There's no scripts in front of them. They have it all memorized. But they begin enacting a scene from the movie of the Poseidon Adventure 
with the solemnity of the most intense religious magical ceremony. I mean, it is hardcore, and I just do not know what to make of it. I think, my God, do they do they do this every like Sunday? Is it is it Sunday? What's going on? This I've stumbled into this like really weird, intimate, private world. Well, I actually know the movie of the Poseidon Adventure. And I certainly, of all the scenes, I knew the one that they were doing. And I mumbled one of the lines. And oh my God, it, it, the reaction was worse than the anthropology people on the Zoom session. Mm. It was very conflicted. A couple of people thought, oh, this is great. This is a sign. The stranger is one of us and knows the ritual. But most of them, I'd said the thing that was not. They were so hostile. I had broken the sacred tradition. I had uttered in a profane way the magical sacred words. And they physically escorted me to the door. And while I was being kicked out of this boarding house and this weird ritual, the food starts being brought into the dining room, again, with like religious, solemn ceremony and dignity. And it actually smells really good. And as they're kicking me out the door, the woman in the Shelley Winters mask, who is my key antagonist, the one who was most offended by my muttering one of the lines, said, no rhubarb pie for you. <laughs> And with that, I thankfully woke up and left that town and that weird ritual, which upon reflection strikes me as a, a kind of great metaphor for the internet that somewhere out there, there could well be a group of weirdos enacting as ritual, as religious practice, God knows what, you know? <laughs> 